Hey everybody, this is your Founding Friday host, John Odermatt, coming at you real quick before we kick off today's show. I want to talk to everybody out there, new listeners, old listeners, the whole spectrum. If you like this show, if you like what we're doing and you want to support us, I want you to consider joining the Lions of Liberty Pride and I want to tell you why now is the best time to do it. So we have a special going on right now. Um, if you sign up, so with Patreon now, we uh, have a, uh, a way where you can sign up for a year in advance. And by doing that, you sign up for the Lions of Liberty Pride by going to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty and you do the whole year, you're going to get two months free. And if you do that for, uh, we have different levels, right? From $5 up to, to $50 and actually up from there. But um, if you sign up for $15 a month or more, we're going to send you a free Lions of Liberty beanie from our Lions of Liberty store. So you sign up at $15 or a month or greater, um, you're going to get the beanie. You're going to get two free months. You're going to get all of our bonus content. Degenerate Gamblers is a show we have every single week, especially this time of year during football season, betting season. Um, and we have Conspiracy Corner, an awesome show. Um, I am never on Conspiracy Corner, but I, it's one of my favorite. I'm not, even, I'm not even just saying this. I mean, I really, I really mean this. Conspiracy Corner is one of my favorite podcasts to listen to. It's going to be Mark and Howie and Rico and JB, and they do a fantastic job digging into all kinds of different conspiracies. But you can't hear it unless you're in the Lions of Liberty Pride. So go to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Let's get rolling into today's show. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and... Yes, even you, freedom lovers, even you are invited to uh, listen to this podcast. Uh, Welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday. It's a weekly show here on the Lions of Liberty podcast, one of three shows. We have two other shows. Every Monday, our flagship program hosted by Mark Clare. Wednesday, Electric Liberty Land hosted by Brian McWilliams. And every Friday, of course, this show right here where I focus on shining a light on the broken criminal justice system. Excited for today's show. Have a returning guest who's been on the show twice before. He's on to talk about his new book, which is a very, very important book and a very entertaining and uh, well-written book as well, I might say so. And also, we're going to talk about, with my guest, what we potentially could see uh, in a Biden administration with regards to criminal justice reform, and maybe some ways we can put some pressure on the Biden administration, or even before that, how we can uh, maybe apply some pressure to Donald Trump uh, to get some pardons and grant clemency before his time is up. Or maybe his time isn't up. I don't know. I mean, we'll see what happens. Things are crazy in the uh, the presidential race, so we'll see how that shakes out. If you haven't subscribed to the Lions of Liberty podcast, I want to encourage you to uh, subscribe. Maybe you've listened once, twice, ten times. Um, really consider hitting that subscribe button. You get all three shows, three unique shows, a variety format delivered to your listening device every single Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So please subscribe, leave a five-star review, leave us a nice comment. We really, really appreciate it. All right, guys, hope you enjoy today's show. Today's show, I welcome back Chad Marks. He's back on the show for the third time. He was uh, on on episode 236 and episode 
248, which you'll be able to find links to those on the show notes page. Uh, I wanted to talk to Chad for a couple of reasons. Um, I mean, first of all, he's one of the most knowledgeable people that I know on the criminal justice system, on the reforms that have been put in place recently and on what we need to do going forward. So uh, I want to talk about the a potential of a you know Joe Biden presidency, what that administration could look like. But uh, more importantly, and uh, something I think that everyone should consider with the uh, Christmas coming up, the holidays coming up as a present to uh, someone interested in criminal justice reform, uh, Chad released a book, his first book. It's called Blood on the Razor Wire, a prison memoir. Um, I got the opportunity to read the first couple chapters of it. And he's going to talk about he's doing a virtual book signing coming up soon here. So, Chad, welcome back to Felony Friday. Thank you for having me, John. I appreciate being here and being on your show and being able to share with people. Yeah, it's it's great to have you back. And, uh, you know, I think you bring you bring to the table a uh, unique perspective being all that you've done, um, not only really fighting for your own free freedom, you know, acting as your own lawyer, but helping others while you were in prison. And now that you're, you're out helping others to, uh, get their prison first working as a, uh, as a jailhouse lawyer and now working in a, uh, capacity. Um, what's the name of the, the group that you're, that you're working with now? Uh, freedom fighters, paralegal and prison consultant firm. Freedom Fighters, yeah, with with uh, with Freedom Fighters. So we'll talk about all that stuff, but I do want to start with the book. And, you know, it's a, I guess, a generic question, but I think it's an important one to ask. Why did you want to write a book? Why did you want to put all this time in, all this effort in to, uh, you know, putting your prison experience into a, a book form? Well, this is the thing, John. While I was in prison, I read a bunch of prison books, right? And most of those guys that wrote them prison books, they didn't talk much about the criminal justice system. Um, most of their books were stories of redemption. They were in prisons like low security and minimum security prisons. And those guys never experienced the things that I experienced. And I felt like the public should know what's really going on in federal prisons and maximum security federal prisons. You know, like I said, you know, no one could tell my story because they'd never been in the position that I had been in. Well, I shouldn't say no one. I mean, no one has of yet wrote a book that I've read that have been in maximum security federal prisons in the United States. So I felt like the public should know exactly what's going on in those prisons where guys are serving life. You know, it's not a story of redemption. Um, although I am redeemed, it is a story that takes you inside the prison system. Um, there's some violence in there. Actually, there's a lot of violence in there because that's what's going on. I talk about, you know, emotions and feelings and what men go through that are sentenced to sentences such as 30, 40 years and life sentences. So I want to give the public a different perspective on what prison really is. No sugarcoating, no political correctness, none of that stuff. Just straightforward and let people know what's going on. The way that you write this book, I mean, it's, it's really well written in a way that it, you know, it's, it sounds like you're, you're just telling a story, like you're, like you're just talking out, just telling the story, explaining in details, in, in great detail, uh, in, in many of these parts. And so, some of them are kind of, kind of funny. I don't ask you in a little bit about, about some of these, uh, some of these situations that, that you, that you bring up, how you explain them. I think it really pulls the reader in. So did you write this? I'm assuming you kind of wrote this as, as you went along um, while you were in prison because to, to have the memory to go back and be able to put this down, I'm assuming you didn't just write this all in the last couple of months. Maybe you did, but did you have a like an ongoing uh, sort of journal where you were documenting these stories? 
Well, that's exactly what I did, John. I was writing a journal when I was in Big Sandy. I knew that was the most violent federal prison in the United States, probably the most violent prison in the United States between federal and state prison um, at that time. I mean, you got some dangerous prisons in California and Louisiana, New York. But, you know, this 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 prison was just super dangerous. So I wanted to uh, I was just writing a journal, man. I had a 40 year sentence. So it was more, you know, I just was writing everything that was going on. And then later on, I said, you know, I ought to write a book. And I had all that stuff that I had wrote in my journal and to refresh my memory. And that's how I wrote the book. Um, I finished the book when I when I believed I was getting out of prison the last year when I was going through everything with my judge and with the court. That's when I really sat down and got serious about, hey, let me put this journal into book form. Mm-hmm. And I ended up writing it over the last year um, when I was back at court while I was in the county jail. That's where I finished the last seven or eight chapters was while I was waiting for court and all that stuff. So who who did the, uh, the cover of it? <clears throat> I mean, this is just audio, but I mean, for people just to give a visual to explain it, you know, it's, it's, it's a really eye catching cover, you know, it's called blood on the razor wire. It has the white background splashed with blood. Where did that idea come from? Well, um, I worked with a guy named, uh, Chad Brown from writing nights, he, um, he helped me out with the cover um, through his people and, and through his company, um, Chad Robertson. Uh, real, real good guy. I think he just, I think he, he, I gave him an idea of what I wanted. I gave him a drawing of what I wanted and he dealt with his people and everything. He was the editor on the book and all that. So he's the one that really put the cover together. I thought he did a really good job. Yeah, I think so too. Very uh, professionally done. Uh, I do want to talk a little bit about, you know, I, I don't want to give the book away or anything. I want people to buy it. Uh, but, you know, I think it's interesting and, and noteworthy to talk about how you kick things off. And, you know, you started off by talking about word for word what the uh, what the judge said to you. And uh, I think I have it written down here. Yeah, so the judge said, This is a quote, uh, guided by the statute that says I must impose a sentence sufficient. I think in this context, if a sentence of 40 years is not sufficient to comport with this with the statute, I'm not sure what is. So that's the sentence I intend to impose. So you talked about it in the book a little bit, but I just want you to right now, if you can think back at that point in time, you hear the judge say that. I mean, what, what were your immediate thoughts? What came rushing into the front of your mind? I remember it like it was yesterday, right? And every time I read that, it bothers me still. Um, it's a little emotional, you know. At that moment, I just felt my hands get sweaty. I felt my heart start to race. Um, I knew that my federal mandatory minimum sentence was 40 years. The government was asking for life plus 30 years for my nonviolent drug offense. So in a sense, as crazy as this might sound, when he said that he was going to give me 40 years right there, it was a relief to a certain extent because it wasn't life. Because I knew that there was a real possibility that I was walking into court that day and that I was going to get a life sentence. Um, but it was still devastating. You know, and I and I talk about in there about my mom, you know, and I, and I, I write in there, quote, I am being led from the courtroom. I look back to see my mother crying. I read her lips. I love you, Chad. I taste the salt from the first teardrop running down my face. I feel the clamps of the cold metal handcuffs bite my skin. My mother disappears. I wonder to myself if that will be the last time I ever see her. 
So really, John, I was hurting inside, but I was also hurting for my mother. You know, um, she was devastated, man. And right at that point, like I said, man, my hands were sweating. My heart was pumping. And I was like, wow, this guy's going to give me 40 years in prison. And I quickly count, calculated how old I would be when I got out. And I said, man, I was 24 when I went in and I'll be 64 when I get out. And I, and I thought to myself at that point, and I remember having this thought, I said, how the hell am I going to take care of myself when I, if I went to prison at 24 and I get out at 64 and I don't know anything about the world? Mm-hmm. That was one of my first thoughts. I'm like, wow, you know, I always, I was thinking he might give me life, but I want to get out. And then when he said 40 years, I quickly shifted from, I wanted to get out. Like, is it really even worth getting out? Kind of like that guy in that Shawshank Redemption movie. Hmm. Like, would I even be able to make it? My mom would be gone. You know, my sister would have her life. I'd be getting out of prison with no one and nothing, you know? And I, and I was just, yeah, I dealt with that at that very moment. It just, it rocked me. It rocked my, it just rocked me inside. Yeah, that's an interesting point you bring up there. Cause that's, that's something that, you know, I really haven't considered when people hear that sentence, even maybe, I mean, you're saying yours was 40 years, but I mean, the same thing could be 20 years, 10 years, 15 years. Uh, and that probably does feed into, you know, why, you know, you know, why you have recidivism, why you have people, you know, just going back in prison, because if at that point in time, those thoughts are flooding their mind, like, sure, I'm going to be in here for 15 years, 20 years. How, how am I going to, you know, get by when I get out? You know, everyone that I know will probably be gone or, you know, forgotten about me. You know, you're not going to have skills. I don't know if you're, you're thinking at that time, you probably are thinking it's going to be a different world. I mean, you know how technology's changing, everything's changing. You, how are you going to get the skills to survive? I mean, I thought I didn't think in the in the sense of what skills am I going to have, but it, and I, like I said, I'll never forget it when he said that. It was like I actually seen that movie, like it entered my mind at that very moment, that Shawshank Redemption movie. Mm-hmm. It was like it was playing in my mind while he was talking to me, and I was and I thought like, wow, I'm going to be an old man when I get out. I'll never be able to take care of myself. And I didn't think, you know, like, oh, a job. I just thought that was just my thought. Like, how can I take care of myself after 40 years in prison, getting out and, and trying to live a life at that point? And, you know, we talk about reentry all the time and how people have to be success- successful when they get out. And we know the law says that a punishment should be sufficient, but not greater than necessary to achieve the goals of sentencing. But when we get down to it, do we ever really think about what it's like when judges are given 30, 40 years to people? I mean, I can understand in 10 years, you're 25, 24, you can still have a life. But when you're 24, they give you 40 years. I mean, how are you going to have a successful reentry? And we're not thinking about that. We're not thinking about when we impose these sentences, what effect that'll have on the community when people do get out of prison, because they're destined to fail with that type of sentence at that age. So uh, another excerpt I wanted to uh, ask you about from the book as you were going through your, your transportation process to Big Sandy, you had to stop off in Atlanta, uh, USP Atlanta. And you're talking about um, you know, the concrete jungle there. And it's difficult. It would be difficult for a normal person to distinguish between a guard and an inmate. Can you, can you explain what, it would, yeah. what you mean by that? Well, this is what I mean by that. Am I allowed to swear on this show? Okay. So what I mean by that is anyone that's ever been through Atlanta, through that process, they know exactly what I'm talking about. As soon as you get there, you know, the guards are nasty right from the rip. 
and, and they tell you, hey, get on the fucking wall. Hey, stupid. Hey, you piece of shit. Take your clothes off. And in my mind, I was thinking, wow, these are federal correctional officers talking to people like this. You know what I mean? I thought I was in the street. I thought I was in, you know, in the ghetto parts of Atlanta, the way that these people were talking to me. And it didn't matter what color the guards were, if they were black or white. That's how they all talk to you. And they were straight with you to tell you, hey, I'll punch you right in the face. And you're like, wow. So when you go through Atlanta, everybody knows, even the tough guys know that it's better to just, you know, keep your keep your mouth shut and pretty much do what they say. Grab your bedroll, go to your cell, mind your business. Don't even talk to these people because they're just horrible, horrible people there, man. It's filthy, dirty. There's cockroaches all over mice. Um, When I was there, I didn't eat the food. The only thing I would eat was the fruit and bread. Because as soon as I opened that tray, there was cockroaches oh, in it. Um, and that's just common. Everybody knows that that's been through Atlanta. We had a desk in our cell with a four-foot leg on it that you could just take right off the desk. And it was steel. And you could just whack somebody with it. I mean, the place is bad. It's a dungeon. Absolutely disgusting. In, in Atlanta, you had, uh, I guess that was your first your first cellie, your first cellmate. And explaining yeah. his... Uh, this part was kind of funny. I mean, not funny at the time for you, I'm sure, but explaining his, his bad breath. Um, if, if I find myself, you said, I find myself wondering if there's such a thing as death by bad breath. So can you, I mean, I guess you didn't even, when you were talking about the guy, I don't even know if you remembered his name, but can you take us through that, the first experience interacting with, uh, you know, with, with the celly? Yeah. Um, when I got there, I went in the cell and that guy was in there and he, the clothes they give you are horrible. They got holes in them. They're ripped up. And I see this guy and I'm like, man, this guy looks like a homeless guy, you know? And um, he, he was, he was obviously a drug addict, unfortunately still using drugs in prison. He, uh, he wouldn't stop talking. And I, I kind of just wanted some rest. I just wanted to relax. Right. And um, his breath smelled horrible back then. When you went through there, they gave you a little toothbrush um, and this toothpaste that was absolutely horrible. That didn't work. And I don't think he really used much of it. He didn't, his, you know, his teeth weren't all intact. And yeah, his breath smelled like, like he had just ate a dirty diaper. And he was talking to me within a foot of each other. And I'm just kind of like trying to get away from this guy. Like, hey, man, sit, you know, sit at the desk and I'll lay on the bed. And you can talk to me from over there because his breath was pretty bad, man. But that's from being in Atlanta for seven days to 14 days with no, uh, with, with no real di- dental hygiene or anything like that. So it's a tough place, man. Yeah, sure. Sounds like it. So, you know, I haven't had a chance to, to read the, read the whole book yet, but I, I want to ask you, um, you know, aside from what, what we've already talked about in, in latter parts of the book, were there, was there anything, any parts of the book that, you know, as you were writing them, as you were going back, reflecting on them that, you know, it was kind of difficult almost to, to write about them because either, you know, it brought up, you know, some, some emotional things that, it just made it made it tough to uh, tough to recount. Um, yeah, I talk about my father in the book. You know, my father was a heroin addict. Um, I had a friend in there named Red, and Red was um, shooting heroin in prison, right? So, there, you know, there was a crazy. There was a part where I talk about my dad when my brother died, and my my dad had came for the funeral. And we went to go find my dad. We couldn't find him. He was getting high. I ended up finding him. And he was so high, he had a needle in his arm and he told me to grab his arm. And I was just like, I just thought it was, it was ridiculous to grab my father's arm while he was shooting heroin. 
but he was so high, he had already shot the heroin, but didn't realize that the needle was sticking out of his arm. So um, we had some words and, and some things happened and I was leaving and I, and I told him, you know, fuck you when I left, you know, it's horrible to have to say that to your father at 14, but my brother had just killed himself. So I said that to him and on my way out, he said, fuck you back. And when I was with red and he was getting high, I was like getting out of the room, out of his cell. And it, it just brought back the memories. And the crazy part, John, is when I was leaving, I told Brett, I said, man, you're a loser. And when I was walking out, he said, hey, Chad, I looked back. He said, fuck you back. It was kind of the wow. same thing that my dad had said me, the same exact word. So that was pretty emotional for me. And it still bothers me when I when I read it. Um, also, my cellmate um, had stabbed the CO when I was in Big Sandy. He, the CO took a gallon of wine from him. And I go through that in the book. And um, just remember when all that stuff happened. So my celly had stabbed the CO over one gallon of wine, he ended up with another 25 years. That's kind of emotional. There was a time when I had first got there, they were stabbing a guy out on the yard and I talk about that and we're all laying on the ground, gunshots. They order us to the ground and I'm just looking up at the clouds and I think I see God up there, like looking at me, laughing at me. And I talk about that in the book. Um, that's pretty emotional. Cause I'm like, man, God, you could have saved me. And I'm telling God while I'm laying on the ground, Get me out of this place, man. Save me from this place. Because you walk in there and you know, John, that it's life or death in there, man. It's, it's a machine. Um, only the strong survive. That saying's true when you get there. This isn't a prison where everybody's going to programs and getting along. These guys got life sentences. They're angry. They're pissed off. They're never getting out. And what can you do to a guy that's never getting out? You've taken everything that mattered. There's nothing no longer matters. So really, they're... You know, even me at 40 years, it's kind of like I was a walking dead man, you know, um, and that's how guys are in there. So they don't care. Very dangerous, very violent. Yeah. Um, and with that in mind, so the, the violence that, that you're talking about in this book, um, which I think I think is important for people to see. Hey, everybody, taking a quick break here from the show. Wanted to remind you all to check out. Uh, my man Tyler Colford, aka Crypto Man, and his new song "Free Ross." If you didn't hear my recent interview with Lynn Ulbricht, that was episode Felony Friday, episode two hundred thirty. Interviewed Lynn Ulbricht, played Tyler's song uh, "Free Ross." It's fantastic, phenomenal. Not just for uh, the message of freeing Ross Ulbricht, but overall for changing the broken criminal justice system. All the proceeds from uh, the Free Ross song, hashtag Free Ross by Crypto Man. You can find it on Spotify and Amazon, Amazon Music. 100% of the proceeds from the song, hashtag Free Ross by Crypto Man, go towards Freeing Ross Ulbricht. So please check it out. These are perilous times when they ruin your lives over victimless crimes and they sever your ties from your business loved ones and family wide. New slave play, but they barely pay you. Don't care about work ethic or major. Was there a particular audience that you were writing this book for as you were writing it? Like, were you writing it for, you know, kids to see to kind of steer them away from this so, so, so they don't get in that situation for the general public to, to see just so that they get an idea of, you know, how, how bad the prison system is. Well, John, anytime I write, right. I always think about who my audience is before I write. And with this book, my audience was different people. My audience was kids. Um, this isn't a scared straight program because I don't think they work. You know, it's the small things I think that could, you know, touch kids like, you know, when you want to go to bed at night and you're hungry 
You, I mean, you're going to bed at night, and you're hungry, and there's no, nothing to eat. Those are the things that I think kids should think about or, you know, have someone say, hey, I love you or I care about you. You know, these are the consequences of your actions. I also looked at family members or people that are in federal prison because, you know, a lot of people and me for a lot of long time, I wouldn't tell my mom what was going on. Hey, are you okay in there? And I'd say, yeah, I'm good. Everything's great. You know, how are things there? Oh, everything's fine. You know, we got school here and we got this here and they gave out cheeseburgs today. You know, I try to keep my mom away from what was really going on, but dudes were getting killed in there. Um, so my audience was, you know, family members, people, people that have family members in prison. So they know what their sons are really going through or even women, women go through some tough things. So that was my audience. Um, lawmakers, you know, why people, you know, you give nonviolent drug offenders life sentences and you put them in these cages and, and in these prisons where, you know, violence is just at an all time high and it's wrong. And they should be rethinking those type of things. So I had a large audience on um, prisoners. You know, people glorify these shows like Gangland and Locked mm-hmm. Up and 60 Days In. All the people that are watching them shows, they should be reading that book. Because that book takes you into all that stuff. How gangs were started in federal prison. What gangs, who the toughest gangs are. What it's like to be in prison. Um, the violence. You know, the emotions that people go through. The depression. You know, the hope for a second chance, the hope to one day be reunited with your family. This isn't just a book all about violence. This is a book about this is this is my long walk to freedom. But what I experienced during that walk, you know, it's like it's it's just a book where I think most people read it in a day and a half, two days. They say they can't put it down. But it's not about me. It's about the story. It's about all the people that are going through exactly what I went through. And people need to know that. Is, is there a certain part of the book or a certain chapter or, you know, excerpt from a chapter that you're most proud of that if you were going to hand the book to to somebody and they only had, say, you know, five minutes, you would say, re- read this? Well, I wouldn't necessarily say proud of, right? But I would say that chapter one, I think the first chapter of this book it's, it's pretty detailed and, and it's shocking. Um, I talk about, you know, we're driving through Atlanta in there. And I talk about, you know, the Red Hills of Georgia that Dr. Martin Luther King spoke about. And I talk about how they're contaminated by my circumstances. You know, um, I just think that that first chapter, that bus, that bus ride, you know, even waking up and pulling myself together to say, hey, I think there's a partner I say, you know, I drag myself from beneath the thin gray white sheets, but I go on to talk about, I stare into the mirror at the face that always looks back at me. I watch tears, loneliness. I watch fear and desperation roll slowly down my face. My emotions are at a picnic. My face is the venue. I have finally come face to face with reality. I am on my way to a real prison to begin serving my very real prison sentence. Cold water on my face again. I mouth the words, you're going to be all right, no matter what. And you know, when I did that, I really said that to myself in the mirror. I said I was going to be all right, but I really didn't know if I was right or wrong about that. I didn't know if I was going to be all right. Not only because I was going to a prison where, you know, there was violence and murder and mayhem, but I didn't know if I was going to be all right emotionally. I had a 40-year sentence. I was leaving my city that I grew up in. I was arrested at the age of 24. I had only lived 24 years of my life on this earth, and now I was going to prison for 40 years much longer than I was ever alive. 
So, you know, I didn't know if I was going to be all right emotional, John. I didn't know if I was going to make it. I really didn't. Man. That's, I mean, that's, that's a really good point. I mean, I think back to myself when I was 24 years old, um, you know, I can't imagine being confronted with the gravity of, of that, of uh, being sent away to prison and having a 40 year sentence hanging on you. It's, that really does put it in perspective. Uh, Chad, so I know you're doing a, a book signing, a virtual book signing coming up, coming up here. And uh, before we get to talking about Joe Biden, I want people to obviously stick around on the show for that. But before we get to that, can you tell people where to buy the book and also talk about this uh, virtual book signing? Okay, they can uh, they can buy the book on Amazon.com, Blood on the Razor Wire by Chad Marks, M-A-R-K-S. Um, we're doing a virtual book signing. We're going to do it live on Facebook at 12 o'clock on Saturday. I believe it's December 5th. Um, people that want a signed copy, they can get a hold of Lisa Jacoby. They can DM her on, on Facebook, J-A-C-O-B-I. Um, they can sign up for that. And um, we're going to do that live signing, but I'm going to answer questions too. You know, some people might have questions about prison and they can shoot them questions to me and I'll answer them live. Uh, questions about the criminal justice system, I'll answer those live as well. I don't think we've ever had a virtual book signing on Facebook ever before, but thinking outside the box and trying to do something different in this world of COVID-19. Yeah, so that's that's going to be streamed on your Facebook page? or Yeah, we're going to do it live on Facebook, yeah. Okay, and so they can find you. It just came up. I mean, I, I just searched Chad Marks on my Facebook, and it, your page came right up, so it should be easy for people to find. If I can, I will try to, uh, try to share the live stream on our Lions of Liberty page as well when it's happening, so people can find it there. But I think if they want to ask you questions, they got to go to the original, have to click through to the original live stream. I think so. I don't know. Yeah, I think they can actually they can actually um, type questions on there and I'll answer them. Right on. I've seen fam and stuff do it like that before. So, And some other people that do podcasts and little things, uh, sell mm -hmm. life, that guy does it like that through Facebook. So that's what we're going to do. Yeah, I, th I think it's a great idea. We were talking pre-show <laughs> and... Uh, I mean, this this could be a, a trendsetter for for book signings going forward. I mean, obviously, hopefully, we get back to some kind of normal in this country where we can actually do face to face things. But for right now, I think it's uh, I think it's a good way to, to navigate uh, what we got going on in this country. And speaking of what we have going on in this country, uh, apparently, we're going to have a new president. It looks that way. Uh, looks more that way, I guess. Every day, we have a president elect who's been projected to win uh, the electoral college. Joe Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris. So I think we've talked about, I think the second time you were on, we talked a little bit about Joe Biden and, uh, and Harris's past as, as uh, criminal justice. I wouldn't call them criminal justice reformers, really the opposite of reform. Criminal justice, uh, I, I don't know. They've, they've done, they've, a lot of people who are in prison now uh, are because of, uh, because of Joe Biden. So I guess kind of kind of start start there. Um, Joe Biden's past. When when you hear you know Joe Biden criminal justice reform without looking at everything that he's promised or talked about, what what comes to mind for you? Well, um, I think about that 1994 crime bill. I think about how many African Americans, um, Hispanics, and poor whites were sent to prison under mandatory minimums. I think about the restrictions on our right to habeas corpus. Um, I think uh, about people that had felonies not being able to 
you know, get loans for college educations when they got out of prison. I think about people that um, were in prison, weren't able to go home and live with their family members that were in um, living in housing projects because they stopped all that stuff too, right? Um, so what you did was with the 1994 crime bill is, you know, you set people up for failure. I mean, it's hard to have a successful reentry when you got nowhere to live. It's hard to have a successful reentry when you want to educate yourself so that you don't have to go back to a life of crime and you can't get a loan to go to college. Um, and those mandatory minimums, I mean, they were crippling, right? There's plenty of uh, kids now that are growing up without fathers and mothers. Um, and they're repeating that vicious cycle of um, criminality and poverty because they're fa- they don't have a father figure. They don't have a mother. Um, they're being raised by grandparents or single mother households. So that's what I think about. And I also think about the fact that the African-American vote turned out big for Joe Biden, right? Hispanics, African-Americans. And I believe that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris owe a debt for their past when it comes to criminal justice, right? Um, it's it, This isn't a, hey, let everyone get out of jail free card, but this is a, hey, let's do the right thing. You know, you don't take a 24-year-old and send them to prison for 40 years. You don't take a drug addict who's allowing people to sell drugs out of his house to support his habit and give him a life sentence under 21 USC 851. You just don't do those things. Um, I believe that, you know, people are redeemable. So I think that there should be ways for people to earn their way out. I think there should be second chances, second looks. If you're doing the right thing in prison, then you should be able to go back in front of your sentencing judge and say, hey, look, I changed my life. I'm no longer a threat to the community. Um, We know what happened with the First Step Act, right? We got four sentencing um, reforms, and only one of those were retroactive, which was the crack, which is still 18 to 1, right? Um, The 924C stacking, which I was sentenced under, has disproportionately destroyed African-Americans. The numbers don't lie, but they changed that law, but they didn't make that retroactive for all the people that are suffering in prison now. Same thing with 21 USC 851. Um, They changed those mandatory minimums. It's no longer life. It's now... Uh, sentencing exposure, it's no longer life. It went to 25 for two prior um, drug felonies. The second one um, they changed was 20, went to 15 if you had one prior. That stuff needs to be made retroactive right away. Um, all these programming things that they put in the first step back where they said people can earn time off, you know, you're getting all kinds of messages from prisoners now saying, hey, it's almost impossible to get any time off. And if you do, it's just a very little bit because the BOP is not implementing it correctly. Or, you know, there was things in the first step back that weren't clear. So we need to do that type of stuff. And I think under this administration, they have an opportunity to fix things, to make things better, while still making the community safer. I can tell you from experience, John, that um, after you spend a significant amount of time in prison, I don't know, eight years, nine years, 10 years, something clicks up there. And you say, you know what? I respect what the framers found important. And I always say that, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You appreciate freedom and family. And you're like, man, I will never in my life commit another crime. Man. I will never jeopardize my freedom because I know how good it feels. And there's thousands and thousands of men and women in prison that feel the same way. Um, you know, you got people like uh, Adrian Miller and Shannon Bentley, Sunita Dill. These are all women stuck in Coleman that aren't getting a second chance. And there's people dying over there at the Coleman prison. There's people being infected with COVID. They had legionnaire disease. They had a sexual assault thing going on over there with, with staff that went to the courts. Um, you got people like Jane, Jimmy Romans sentenced to life for marijuana. Christopher Hunter, 
Um, Jeremy Gage, another guy that uh, deserves to get out of prison. His wife's advocating hard for him. Nonviolent drug offender, you give him 25 years. Did he really deserve that? Is that what we need to do as a country? So Joe Biden can fix these things, but he could he could go even bigger. I mean, people are talking about clemency and pardons right now with with um, Donald Trump. But you got people out there advocating right now and saying, hey, look, let's fix this now. Let's get a bunch of people out on clemency. You got, you know, Weldon Angelos, Amy Pova, Kevin Ring, Debbie Campbell, all these people, Lisa Jacoby. You got people all over fighting for clemency right now. But Joe Biden can come in and let's do some clemencies. For the people that didn't get the retro effect off of the first step back, if you can't get the Senate and, and, and the House on board, well, you have the power to start granting clemencies to these people. Ian Owens, 300 years, 924C stacking. Um, it's outrageous, man. You think- so talk, talk about Donald Trump for a minute to go back to that and, and also bring it back to, to Biden around clemency. So, yeah, Trump, Trump has done pardons and he's granted clemency. I don't know what the list is. I wish it was a lot longer, but but there's there's been some. And Obama, in his second term towards the end, did, did the same thing. But I think with Obama, I don't think this is the case with Trump. But he got his clemency, uh, you know, run or you know the number that he did kind of got held up in procedural things, right? They just they kind of ran out of time, and there were a bunch of applications that I don't know if they even got reviewed. Yeah. But so how how do you avoid? How do you avoid that? And is clemency the best way or is there, I mean, if there is a way to get it through Congress and the Senate and all that, that you could pass a law that could just do it in one foul swoop and avoid having to go through, you know, one by one, these uh, clemency petitions. Well, this is the thing, right? I think there's a bunch of things that they can do. Um, And like you said, we'll bring it back to Trump. Right now, Trump can grant clemency to a whole bunch of people. Uh, There's Robert Evans. He's a paraplegic African-American sentenced to life for drugs, nonviolent drug offender. He's in bad shape. And I've spoken to his wife and they're afraid he might die any day. He just got denied compassionate release. The judge says, well, you know what? You know, too bad. You got a life sentence. And, you know, that meant you're going to die in prison. Not the that right was approach. the same. That was um, the same sentencing judge, I assume. Or... Yeah, that was his sentencing judge. Me and Weldon Angelos both worked on his clemency petition. Uh, put it in. We're advocating for him. Like I said, Jeremy Gage, but Trump can go in there and do this now. Right. Um, but what has to happen under the Biden administration, there's there's numerous things that have to happen. I think he can come in right away and grant clemency to the people that didn't get retroactive effect off of first step back where the laws were changed. Cory Booker challenged all of them on the debate stage to do that. He said, I'm telling you now, I'm challenging everyone here. If you're elected president to go in and fix this for the people that we didn't release. So that's the first thing I think they can do, go in there and grant clemencies. I mean, you can do this in the first 30 days. Why not? Um, Second, I think that there needs to be criminal justice reform um, legislation implemented to also make that stuff retroactive that we just spoke about from the First Step Act. There should also also be legislation for second chances and second looks where people like Matthew Charles, I mean, everyone knows the story of Matthew Charles, where you can go back into court and say, hey, look, judge. I did change my life, and this is who I am today. I'm no longer a threat to public safety, and the biggest indicator of that is what? My rehabilitation and behavior while in prison. So I think there needs to be legislation for that as well. Um, I think, uh, not think, it's something that has to be done. You know, I'd like to, and I've been speaking about this a little bit the last week, talking to people. If they're playing games and COVID-19 is over with, I think we need to... uh, I think we need to get a uh, million man march down there at the White House 
and let them know that, yeah, we want real criminal justice reform. Um, and, and we can do that. Let our voice be heard. I mean, you, we're not looking for violence, but you see this stuff all over the world, right? Where changes are being made. We've seen it years ago in Egypt, right? People were down there and marching and, and they got some changes. Um, things don't change just by, you know, people talking on a podcast or, you know, writing a book. I mean, there's power in numbers. We need to go down there and say, hey, look, you know, the African-American vote mattered. The Hispanic vote mattered. You're in that office because of these people. Yet this class of people are suffering in prison under mandatory minimums that you help implement. Let's go ahead and fix this. I watched a show the other day, a documentary by, uh, what was his name? It was, who do we invade next or something? Michael Moore, he went to these other countries and looked at their prison system. And one of the people, I seen little clips in prison, but I finally was able to watch it. And then he said, well, you know, he said, what about this cruel and unusual punishment thing? And the people said, oh, well, we don't, you know, we believe that we shouldn't be cruel and unusual. And Michael Moore asked the people, he said, well, where the hell did you get that concept they, from? He said, we got it from the United States. They said they believe that they, that they should a, be cruel and unusual? No, they believe oh, that they okay. shouldn't because he went into their prison. And their prison, they're like doing rehabilitation. People are, you know, they're treating people mm -hmm. like human beings. And he said, well, what, what's going on here? So, well, we don't believe in being cruel and unusual. And Michael Moore says, well, where'd you get that concept from? And he goes, oh, we got it from you guys, but you guys just don't implement it. We do. And I was just, it's just astonishing. Mm -hmm. That they would, you know, that they say, hey, we took that from your constitution. You guys don't apply it. We do. And that's where we need to get ourselves to. There has to be consequences for actions, but you don't have to put people in prison for 20 years, yeah. man. You just don't have to do that. 30, 40 years, 300 years. Who the hell, how could you give someone a 300 year sentence? They can't serve it. It's absurd. Yeah. It, it, so we need real, real criminal justice. And speaking of the, the cruel and unusual punishment thing, and I've talked about, I don't, we, we might've talked about it on a previous show. I've talked about it with a lot of my guests, but there is a real problem with a large part of this country where people are okay. And maybe even more than okay. They are in, in favor of that type of, uh, you know, incarceration, that type of punishment that they think jail should be a horrible, terrible experience. And, you know, they would, you know, say a lot of things that, that you're, uh, you know, recounting in this book, talking about, you know, the, the roaches and the, and the, and the mice running everywhere and all these, all these horrible conditions, they would say, well, you shouldn't have broke the law, which is freaking ridiculous. I mean, that is a ridiculous standpoint, ridiculous stance, because if you're just being reasonable and looking at the whole picture, I mean, a, a child could understand that, yes, you're putting these people in a horrible situation. And yes, they are going to get out of the horrible situation and come back into the public. And what happens then? Like, it's, I do not understand where this whole mindset comes from. Well, let me tell you something. There has to be consequences, right? But we're a country that bases itself off second chances, right? That don't mean you commit a crime and you should go to prison and the cops should punch you in the face or mm -hmm. kick you or, you know, take your uh, shampoo and dump it all over your bed. Um, you shouldn't have to live with cockroaches and mice and food that's infested. I mean, if you commit a crime, there has to be a consequence. It doesn't mean you go to prison and you play Playstations and have a jolly old time. The punishment is the separation from society, the separation mm -hmm. from family members. That stuff hurts. You know, the separation from children that you love and you care about. And, you know, unfortunately, John, a lot of people make decisions because they become a product of their environment. And we can all say, oh, well, you know, you're old enough to make, you know, the right decision, you know, at your age. Well, guess what? It's a learned behavior. When you're 12 years old and you're selling cocaine or selling crack 
because unfortunately your mother's drug addicted and there's no food in the house. And, you know, the older kids grab a hold of you and that's what all you know to survive. You know, that that's your life. That becomes your lifestyle. And unfortunately, you go to prison. I'm not justifying it or saying that that's OK. But we have to understand sometimes that, you know, I've done cases with guys from New York City that grew up with nothing, with nowhere to live, you know, and, and they're 20 years old. And I'm doing a case right now. The guy's 24 years old. They want to give him a plea for 30 years. Wow. He didn't kill anybody. It's a nonviolent drug offense. Does he deserve to go to prison? He deserves to go to prison. And he, he tells me that all the time. But do we take a 24-year-old, 24-year-old kid who was selling dime bags of heroin and give him 30 years? He's making enough money to buy some sneakers and pants and pay his rent. He's got no money for commissary. He's got nothing. So what does that do for society? What it does is we take this guy, we put him in prison for 30 years, and the taxpayers foot the bill now. Should he walk out of jail today? No. Should he go to prison and learn a skill so he can come out here and not suck tax dollars or not come out here and commit more crimes? Of course he should. But what are we going to do with 30 years? What do do you do 30 years from now when he's 54 and he knows nothing? I think, I think that brings up a good point. And so Joe Biden talks about this, uh, you know, school to prison pipeline. You have all these young people that, you know, the, 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 the pipeline from, from school, they're not getting skills. They're, they're getting, they're getting pulled in the, in, in the wrong direction. They're going to pull it into selling drugs. And his, his solution yeah. is you just put a bunch of mental health professionals, you just throw money at it and you put them in the, in the schools. That's, I mean, that's not going to do anything. That's just going to waste money. That's just going to, yeah. Give people, I mean, maybe it gives people jobs, but I, I think it might help like a couple people. Who knows? But it's not going to help the the systematic problem that's there. So, what, what's your? I don't know if you put a lot of thought into that before. Um, it's it's a complicated problem. I think that is rooted in uh, you know families being broken up. It's rooted in just the brokenness of our education system as it is. That you know we have this one size fits all education. Yeah, you know, people are sort of just forced into that one mold and you're not, you know, allowed to be creative and do things like that. Well, what, have you given a lot of thought about how to how to fix that? Well, this is what we need to do, right? I'm a firm believer that we have to get kids job ready instead of jail ready. Um, I was in prison with a guy named Cedric Dean. He has a save organization in Charlotte, North Carolina. I just went down there and met with him because I want to try to implement his program here in my city. Um they're talking about putting these mental health professionals in there and all these people that read stuff out of books. Well, guess what? Those ain't the people that are going to get it done, John. It it might help a few people, right? But those kids need to hear our Mm -hmm. stories, but not only hear the stories, but they have to have other opportunities. We have to teach these kids how to do things, how to make money. You know, we have to teach them, you know, what the consequences are. We have a uh, incarceration prevention class through save where we want to take kids into federal courtrooms and see the effects of their decisions. We want to take them into morgues and see the effects of being 14 or 15 years old and arguing with someone on Facebook over a girl and then going to their house and killing them. We want you to see that. We want to take them to places where people are making real money, where we're talking to CEOs. We want you to see what you can do. We want you to believe in yourself. Um, Again, we go back to, hey, look, it's hard to do all that stuff when when, when the home's not stable, right? But there's plans, you know, with Save where we go into the homes and we try to help them too. So we have to not only get the kids right, but we got to get the parents right too, right? We would save so more, so much more money and heartache and tax dollars if we were able to help kids and the parents, right? We're not going to help everyone, but I'll tell you what, I think we could put a hell of a dent in it. I think we could do more good than bad. Um, putting mental health professionals in schools, man, it ain't going to cut it. 
just like the DARE program didn't help mm-hmm. me back then when they came in and talked to us. People don't want to hear that stuff. Kids don't want to hear that stuff. But let me tell you what the kids do want to hear, right? Unfortunately, a lot of kids are fascinated by prison, right? They're fascinated by this life, you know, those kids that are doing the wrong thing. So when I walk in there and I start talking to them, it gives me an opening. But we go from that opening to start talking about character education, right? They're interested in me and my story. So now they're receptive to me being the person that says, hey, look, we can do this. You know, I, I you know, I was, you know, I helped people go to prison. I did. By, you know, doing the things that I did. I was the guy that was teaching them kids how to sell drugs and do the wrong things, right? Well, now I'm that same guy that can teach them how to get job ready instead of jail ready. And that's what we need. We need people like Cedric Dean. We need those type of people. We need people like um, Weldon Angelos. We need people like um, myself. You know, just guys that are getting out of prison that are really determined to, you know, turn things around. Uh, Adam Clawson had 213-year sentence. Dude's super intelligent. We need people like him to go in the classrooms and, and, and devote some time to this stuff because we have a story to tell. We have an interesting story. And that's what grabs the kids. And then we go from there and say, hey, what's going on? What's the problem? What is it that you really want in life? You know, and I used to tell people this in my class, John, I would ask the guys in prison, I would say, tell me what you're worth. And they'd say, oh, man, I'm worth a million dollars. I'm worth five million. And I would tell them, I said, well, I'm going to tell you what I was worth. Today I'm today I'm priceless, but back then I was worth two thousand dollars or fifteen hundred dollars. When I stood on that corner with that gun in my waist and 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 a thousand dollars worth of crack in my pocket and I was selling it, I was worth a thousand dollars because I was jeopardizing my life for a thousand dollars. I was jeopardizing going to prison, I was jeopardizing being robbed, I was jeopardized being being mm-hmm. killed. So I want them to see that that they're worth more than that. You're worth more than that thousand dollars, you're worth more than that coat or them Gucci clothes, or buying your girl that Gucci purse. You're, you're better than that. You're worth more than that. And that is, that might be the best way I've heard it laid out right there. And I, I'm, I work in uh, risk analysis, risk management in my day job, cost-benefit analysis. And when you put it that way to someone, and this is something the kids could understand. And kids, I mean, that's probably, that's why they get in, that's why you get in these situations, especially males, you know, males mm-hmm. under the age of, they say 25, I think it's probably more like 30, but you know, the brain's not fully developed. You don't really understand and think through the cost of benefits of, of, of your actions. But if you can sort of lay it out, you sort of lay out exactly like you just said, you know, what you're doing, you are taking a risk. You're standing on a corner you, for, you know, you have thousand dollars in your pocket. Maybe you're trying to turn that thousand into 2000. You know, you're, you're trying to turn the drugs that you have. You're tr- trying to turn that into money. Whatever you're risking right there, what is your uh, what's your biggest risk? You could be killed. What's the probability you could be killed? It's probably a lot higher than you're thinking at that point in time. What's the probability you get arrested, go to jail, lose you know three four decades of your life? Probably a lot higher than you than you're thinking about at that point in time. So if you can start to lay that out, those decisions those decisions in front of uh, young adults, I, I think that that's absolutely the way to do it. And the other thing you said earlier about giving exposure to successful individuals, entrepreneurs. Uh, people successful in business, CEOs, um, people who've had success in real estate, w- whatever, um, and give that contrast because in, in a lot of these uh, you know urban areas, people are seeing the most successful people are are the drug dealers. You know they're driving the nicest cars, they're having the most success. You give that contrast and show another path. That's I mean that doesn't mean they're going to choose it, but that's that's the first step. Gives them someone to to look to at least. Well, a lot of these kids, right? They're motivated by 
money because of their circumstances. They know what it was like to be poor. I, I know what it was like um, to have kids pick on you because your clothes are dirty or holes in your shoes. So I think that's that, that's one thing that has always driven me as far as making money, no matter what I did it, that when I did it illegally or legally, right? Um, so with these kids, they a lot of them kids have that have that that drive in them, right? Why can't they, you know, start small? Why can't they have a hot dog cart and turn one into two, two into four, four into eight? Why can't they learn a skill and learn how to buy houses and flip houses and go in there and fix them up? And now you, you know you reap a thirty, forty thousand dollar um gain when you resell the house. I mean, these are the things that we can teach these kids, man. They have it. They're, they're businessmen. They're businessmen and women, these, these young kids. You see kids all the time trying to make their own clothing lines and do this. Why can't they do it? Why do they have to turn to drugs? We just have to show them another way and show them that this way, you know, as a drug dealer, like you said, yeah, you know, that works out for a year or two, but guess what? Then you're going to spend 20, 30 years in prison without even commissary money. But if you do it this way, you can, you know, live a, a full life. You can have all the things that you desire and you can have them for forever. So that's definitely the approach. And, you know, with this whole COVID thing, it's kind of stopping me from doing everything I want to do, you know, getting into schools because kids aren't even in school. But I definitely, I'm doing this 100%. And, you know, anything that you guys are doing where you're at or anything like that, I'll fly there on my own dime and I'll do it. You know, you guys want to go into classrooms over there, I'm ready. Um, you know, I want to. This is this is what I want to do. I love doing it. Yeah, and I mean, and to be honest, so, that's something that we haven't talked about this a lot publicly. But with our you know, podcast, Lines of Liberty and Felony Friday being a part of that, um, we've talked about you know different ways that we can get involved in communities and uh, and do things like that. Because uh, honestly, I don't think we're going to change this country the way it needs to be changed just through elections, just through elected politicians. It's got to be done at the community level. It's got to be, you know, it, it's got to be you know reaching out and actually. Um, influencing the people around you and your lo local neighborhoods of local community. But For sure. Chad, I know you have a, uh, you have a, I think a hard stop coming up here. So I don't want to take any more of your time, but before I let you go, you know, people listen all the way through. Um, if they didn't want to buy your book at the beginning, they probably do now. So tell them one more time, uh, give a, give a, another pitch why they should buy the book and, uh, and where they can get it and uh, plug your, uh, your signing again. Okay. Um, again, you can get the book Blood on the Razor Wire, One Man's Journey Through the Violent Federal Prison System on Amazon.com. If you want a signed copy, you can DM on Facebook, um, Lisa Jacoby, J-O-C-B-I. We're having a live book signing Saturday, December 5th at 12 o'clock on Facebook. Why you should buy the book. The book isn't about me. The book is about the platform. Hopefully getting the book out there and who knows what we can do with it. That way we can do the things that we want to do, like get kids job ready instead of jail ready. Um, and I just think that it's a book that not that I think, but I promise you, you won't, oh, you can read the first three chapters for free right on Amazon. I promise you won't be able to put it down. It's, it takes you inside the federal prison system, inside the criminal justice system. And, uh, I think you'll be happy with it. Chad Marks. Thank you for coming back on the show. Not a problem. I appreciate you. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode of Felony Friday, another awesome episode. Just want to remind everyone, before you get going here, off to your next uh, next podcast and your shuffle or whatever it is you're doing with your, uh, your day today, I want to thank you for giving me your time and uh, listening to this interview. I want to ask you, please to share this with a friend. The only way that we're going to expand this message that we're going to reform this criminal justice system is by sharing interviews just like this with your network. Very easy to do. 
And I also want to ask you to please, if you have not yet checked it out, you need to go to the Lions of Liberty store. It's lionsofliberty.store. Uh, we have a bunch of new t-shirt designs, really interesting stuff, really eye-catching designs. Uh, of course, our taxation is death shirt has been a hit. It's selling like crazy. We now have the, uh, the tax on wax off shirt. Just awesome. And, and there's more coming. We're really trying to get into uh, what we're calling it the Lions of Liberty brand of shirts. So you're going to get the cool design on the front. And then up, just real small, up by the tag on the back, you're going to have our Are You Ready to Roar logo. Uh, we're trying to, you know, take another angle here and influence people through, uh, you know, some snazzy t-shirts. So check it out, lionsofliberty.store. And remember, if you're in the Lions of Liberty Pride, you get 20% off. So for as little as five bucks a month, you're going to get 20% off all your t-shirt orders. So to join the Pride, go to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. And with that being said, guys, thank you so much for joining me. Have a great weekend or week or whenever you're listening to this. Just have an awesome day. I'll talk to you next week. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up. And the fires of liberty burning.